I'm Kendall Michelle Haney, and this is episode five of Type in Tunes. My guest for today's episode is Patrick Rieger. Patrick was a staff writer on Thunderbirds Are Go and Nico and the Sword of Light for Amazon Prime, and more recently was the head writer of Unikitty for Cartoon Network. And Patrick currently volunteers as a co-chair with the Animation Guild's Writers Craft Committee, which is why in this episode, after we walk through Patrick's journey to writing for animation, we will discuss in depth the Guild. What is it? What does it do for us as animation writers? How do we join it? What are the benefits? And sort of everything in between. As someone who isn't super familiar with the guild, I learned a lot and I hope you will too. And then definitely stick around for the end when Patrick gives some great advice for all writers. All right, so I'm here with Patrick Rieger. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thanks for inviting me, Kendall. This is this is going to be fun. Very excited to hear your journey because I know you and we've yes. chatted, um, but I've never heard sort of the details of how you got to all of this and why you love writing for animation so much. Um, yeah. I'm excited to jump in and hear. We can start wherever you want. Did you do this as a kid in Norman, Oklahoma, as I was yeah. also? Yeah, so we should probably talk about the Norman connection uh, <laughs> for, for your listeners. Uh, so I was born in a, a wonderful Midwest college town called Norman, Oklahoma. Um, and this is fun because you are also from, you're also from Norman. Yes. Um, I, I can't remember, are you, were you born and raised in Norman or I can't remember if you moved to Norman and, and spent your formative years there? Yeah, I moved right before middle school. So middle, middle right school. before the real formative years. Right <laughs> uh, so I, I was uh, born and raised there. Uh, I have like four or five generations in Norman. Uh, Amazing. So it's, it's very much home for me. Um, and I loved it. I, I had really wonderful creative parents growing up. And um, both my parents are writers and editors to, to some extent. They both studied journalism in college. And my dad was the editor of the Norman Transcript, which is the local paper there. So I'd say that the biggest influence for me was something that my dad would let me do, which is whenever they would have cartoon strips that would go out of syndication, he'd let me pick what comic would go into the comic strip section. Wow, cool. I love this. You'd get these big syndicate packets of, of like Foxtrot and Boondocks and, and yeah. Zits and all of these all these cartoons that were going on. And um, I would read through them and make a very detailed analysis of each one and Amazing. be like, all right, I think Foxtrot should replace Calvin and Hobbes. I remember that was my big decision when I was first starting out. And I still think I was I was right with that decision. How old were you at that point that you were so like? Uh, probably about uh, 11 or 12. This was okay. right when our dad started and they were they were making that switch. Um, they were doing a lot of Calvin and Hobbes reruns. And so they finally mm -hmm. were like, all right, let's, let's phase out the reruns and do something else. Um, so that was fun. So uh, from a really young age, that really cultivated this love of cartoons and comics and you know all things comedy, comedy book. Uh, I remember Dave Barry was really big. Um, mm -hmm. and that's always been with me, just that desire to write. And, uh, I did a lot of acting and competitive speech in high school. Um, Norman has an incredible like, drama program and competitive speech program. So I had this teacher in uh, English and, uh, acting teacher named Dr. Ballard, who was the Norman High, uh, she's just a legend. Uh, she's retired now, but she's just a legend at the time. Yeah. So I'll fast forward a little to, um, uh, college. So I went to SMU in Dallas uh -huh. and I studied dramatic writing when I was there. And uh, 
about junior year, sometime around then, I read a book called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. And there's a chapter in there uh, called The Stickiness Factor. And it's all about the Angela Santomero and the rise of blues yep. clues and how they created blues clues. Uh, and that, that changed everything for what I thought for a while I'd be a, a theater director or a children's theater director. Okay. This totally changed the direction of my life to wanting to focus in on writing for a young audience. Um, so that sort of changed you know, the, the, the direction. I, at that point I was like, all right, I think I'm gonna head to LA. I think I'm gonna pursue the, the children's and family media writing as a career. So that brought me out to LA. Wow, uh, I didn't know that about, about Tipping Point for you. Um... Tracy Page Johnson was also very formative in my ah. career path. Uh, I interned for her in college oh, and I was like, oh, this is like what preschool content and stuff for kids could be. Um, yeah. It really, it's, it's so revelatory because you realize just how much thought goes into making an engaging yeah. show for that age group. Um, yeah. And I, I've since read preschool clues that uh, Angela uh, wrote and it, it's the breakdown of how kids engage, how they play. Uh, I've read a lot of books recently just about how important watching something is and then recreating it in their own play and just how important that is. Um, yeah. We talk about play patterns all the time when we're working on shows with a toy component, but just the idea of play being so important for young kids and having our characters a lot of times um, be the role models that they play. Um, yeah. I love the idea that we can instill these values and these character traits in them at that young age. Yeah, and inspire them. It's it's such a magical thing. Like when I see pictures of a kid, I just saw one last night of a girl watching the Rocketeer and sort of standing like she stands, and it's like, oh, that's <laughs> that's it. That's why we do this. Yeah, um, that's awesome. So you moved out here, and then mm -hmm. was animation a focus or just sort of kids media in general or how did you start finding your path? Yeah, um, it took me a while to figure out how LA worked. Um, sure. And because I was coming from theater and I, I changed my career track relatively late, I'd say, you know, by senior year, I was like, okay, I think I'm going to head to LA. I think I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. There was still a lot of growing in terms of figuring out how the business worked. Uh, so I would, uh, I did a lot of day jobs for the first six, seven years that I was in LA. Um, okay. I worked retail. I was a substitute teacher. Um, for five years, I had the greatest day job. I worked at a company called Mad Science Los Angeles. What? And um, that one was super fun because we did uh, science themed workshops and after school programs. And then later I got to do like birthday parties on the weekend and these cool giant stage events where I'd play with dry ice and launch rockets and, and blow up hydrogen balloons. And it was super fun. That's amazing. I didn't know that was even a, a service, but it was great. You know, that was that was a really big one when I when I got that because that was a day job that I could work on the weekends and yeah. I could do enough birthday parties to cover rent and utilities so that I could take meetings, general meetings during the week. Awesome. Um, and I could do and I could do more writing and I could I could run writers groups. Um, and so that was a big one around. 2011, I started a writer's group specifically for animation writers. Okay, cool. Um, and that one was super fun. Merigrid Scott was a part of that group. My good friend, Kaida Mukumbara. Yeah. Uh, and a, a lot of us, we started around the same uh, time. And 
what I love about that is our group is still in a, a lot of ways in existence. Like we still check in and support each other. Um, but we were all working on our spec scripts and sample scripts for uh, specifically for animation TV at the time. Cool. So uh, we wrote all sorts of stuff. We met at a comic book shop in North Hollywood. Um, nice. And I loved it because they have game, they had game tables there where you could reserve the game table. So we would bring in our scripts and we would just start, we, you know, being a little round table and we'd read and all the other gamers would come up and they'd ask what game we were playing. Like we <laughs> thought that we were playing some kind of role-playing game. Yeah. You're like, uh, what do you think? Does it sound fun? Uh, any yeah. notes? <laughs> um, that was great. They, you know, I got incredibly good feedback on that. Uh, I still had to kind of learn how to, to write in a lot of ways. I'd done playwriting, sure. but I'd never done TV writing. And so it, so it was, you know, a, a steep learning curve to make it good. Yeah. Um, the writer's group ended up being the main formative thing that kind of helped me get into specifically animated television. We bring, we'd bring special guests in and uh, they'd, they'd come and they'd, they'd speak at the writer's group and then we would uh, work for like an hour. And one of the really great uh, guests that we had was Charlotte Fullerton, who is a, a story editor on Ben 10 and, and has done tons of stuff. And after she met at the comic shop, she looked around and was like, well, why don't you guys just meet at my house? And so, oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so we ended up meeting at Charlotte's house for, I think, two years. And Charlotte wow. had access to even more incredible connections than we had. So yeah. we would have like the head of Cartoon Network come in and the main development person at Hasbro and Marvel TV and Netflix and all the people we could never reach out to on our own. Amazing. So very quickly, this group of like three or four of us became like 30. Wow. <laughs> and, it okay. a, it, and, it, and that group still kind of exists in, to this day. It's, it's all online now in a, in a Facebook group and it's on its like third or fourth generation. But um, that was definitely the way like through that we, we kind of figured out how um, animated TV works and all the different, you know, people that were sort of at our level that were uh, working, you know, coming up with us. Yeah, how did you find each other and where were you sort of pulling resources from? I feel like a lot of people move out here and it's just yeah, it's just crazy. expansive. How do I, did, were you meeting each other at, like I've heard some people meet each other at cons and they form groups from that or how did you guys get yeah, together? Um, the main place that we would meet from is, well, first I took a class. I took a UCLA extension class that was okay. specifically for animation writing. And I think the class is still going on. It's um, Brooks Wattell's UCLA extension class about animation writing. Um, I took that and he invited every member of the class to this special group called the um, Animation Writers Caucus. And at the time they did monthly dinners. Uh, so I would, I would go to those. And I, very quickly I learned that, you know, kind of how those dinners work, which is that everybody has dinner, you meet everyone. There's usually a guest speaker. And at the end of the night, everyone rushes to the guest speaker to try to find work or get connections. And yeah. it took a couple of meetings to realize that the people I should be talking to were the other people I was in the, at the table with, not yeah. just the guest speaker. That's how I found my group. That's how I met Margaret and Kaida for the first time and, and, and others that would be part of our writers group. So we sort of found resources together. I think Margaret was the first one that had a script coordinator job. So we learned okay. a lot about just the day-to-day, -day, what life is like uh, in production through her. Awesome. Um, Haida had done the um, ABC fellowship 
he'd gotten yeah. into that. So we learned a lot about the shows that he was working on through that and how to how to get freelance work, how to write specs. He had all, he, yeah. he had written all these incredible specs. Um, so you just kind of found your resources that way. I love that you guys were just pulling from each other, like you all brought. Yeah. It was very much a hodgepodge. Yeah, that's awesome. What about your first big sort of break? Like when was that moment where you got yeah. your first job? Or it, What I loved about the, you know, kind of the, the winding career track that got me here is it was a lot of mini victories. I think one of the biggest mini victories involved Nicole Dubuque. Because, yeah, yeah I, uh, mean. I met Nicole at one of the writer's dinners, and she invited me to this special thing the Animation Guild was holding, which was a, at the time, real-life panel you could go and attend it. At yeah, the, wait, what? <laughs> went back when those existed. <laughs> it was a real panel, and it was all about action writing. And cool. I wish you could have been at this one, Kendall. It was incredible. It was, I think there were like a dozen head writer producers of action shows at the time. Awesome. It was Dwayne McDuffie and Greg Weissman and Marty Eisenberg and Nicole was there. It, there were more people in the, on the panel than in the audience, <laughs> no joke. And um, I, Nicole invited me to that. I wasn't cool. a, a guild member yet, but she invited me to that. Yeah. And that was, I, I can't tell you how wonderful that panel was. Um, it was there I met Rob Hoagie. Uh, Rob is an SMU alum. And I met him there and I, I got to know Rob for about three years through coffees and sending him my own work. Uh, I could spend an entire podcast talking about how wonderful Rob is. He's truly <laughs> the most amazing uh, employer and friend and mentor. I think in a lot of ways, he's probably my Nicole to you. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't say enough good things about Rob. So uh uh, I kind of, it was sort of this little mentorship thing for three, two or three years. And he calls me out of the blue one day and asks if I want to be his script coordinator. And I love that we'd, we'd had such a connection at that point that he didn't ask for a resume. He didn't interview yes. other people. He just was like, Hey, if the job's yours, if you want it. Yeah. Um, that, that was my big break. And I remember I got, when I got the info on that, I was in the mad science warehouse and I just <laughs> done a party and I was literally scraping egg out of a beaker that I'd done an egg experiment with. And I'm like, Oh man, my, my big break finally happened. This is crazy. Yeah. When do I start? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's awesome. And then from there you've just yeah, sort of been working. I, I work with Rob on Thunderbirds, uh, Argo for, th um, three years, um, on staff with him. And he was great. I, I started as a coordinator and by the end I was getting a chance to edit uh, scripts that came in. So he kind of made me a junior story editor. Awesome. Uh, when Nico and the Sword of Light was going on, I, I was brought in as a staff writer on that. I think I've done, I've worked on five shows with Rob. Uh, okay. So it's been great. And at a certain point I'd, I'd met, a, I'd, you know, I'd had a lot of other connections and a lot of times people are just waiting for you to write on one show to see if you're okay and then they'll yeah. bring you on to other shows uh yeah. so uh i started to make connections at other studios so jim krieg uh, who was at warner brothers brought me on and let me write on justice league action and uh, i finally had a chance to work with uh greg johnson on miles from tomorrowland yeah uh, i think i pitched like 45 to 50 ideas before they finally were just like, okay, let's just give him an episode. That show <laughs> I'm notorious for having people pitch a lot of 
ideas. Yeah. I feel like I've heard that from a few writers. Well, I, it was it was a big that was a big break for me getting a chance to work with with Greg and Sasha on something that was really fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you find since Blues Clues and that whole sticky thing was sort of a big turning point inspiration for you? Is preschool something you're more drawn to, or do you bounce back and forth? Do you like both? Yeah, I really like preschool and bridge age. Um, yeah, some of my favorite shows are the ones that have this extent expansive IP like Transformers and they find a way to make it a show that has a very toyetic playful component. So Rescue Bots yeah. is a, a great example yeah. of that. Um, the show I'm on right now, uh, I'm on the writing staff of Bat Wheels. Again, yeah. that's expansive universe uh, of all the DC characters. And I'm getting to do this fresh perspective that I know that my, my, my sons that are three and six right now, this is exactly what they oh, want. Yeah. It's going to be their introduction into the the DC canon. So that's the kind of stuff I love. I love something with a play component, but also something that has maybe this larger universe that they can explore. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and what about animation in particular? Do you find it's different writing animation than like those plays you used to write or do you Very approach different. it differently? Yeah. I think the big one for me is I just, I, I, I get to slow down especially mm -hmm. when I'm working on um, a preschool or a bridge age show, um, there's, there's just this level of um, really diving into what a character is experiencing in each moment that um, I didn't necessarily do when I was uh, writing plays. Sometimes it'd just be what I was yeah. going through and I'd be able to make connections to things that uh, maybe the audience could make. And with preschool, you really can't do that. You have to live in every moment and see what you can draw out of every moment. Yeah, that's a great insight. I hadn't thought about it in those um, in those terms. I really yeah. like I that. I remember the the early preschool work that I did. Uh, I was on a show called The Stinky and Dirty Show. Yeah. And um, I worked with uh, two story editors on that, but one of them was uh, Rick Suval, and. Rick's fantastic, but I really saw the difference between the scripts I was turning in that were that went a little bit fast and almost choppy at first, mm. and seeing Rick's drafts that he would turn in where he'd really live in every single moment and try to see things the way the two characters, Stinky and Dirty, would see things. And just yeah. like everything was a question, every moment could be turned into something fun. Um, so it's sort of the exploration that you get when you're working on those younger shows that I, I learned a lot from that. Yeah. And that very kid, like young kid, like sense of, of curiosity and wonder mm -hmm. and, and play, like you said, mm -hmm. I love that. Um, what about the process of writing an animated script? Do you have a favorite part and a least favorite part? Yeah. So I, I, there's all sorts, there's springboard premise, outline script. So uh, I, I, I've listened to some of the other podcasts and I'm gonna go the opposite way. I love writing outlines. Yeah? Yes, it's my favorite part. I love writing outlines. All right. Um, I, I, first of all, I love that um, I'm basically writing the kinds of middle grade books that I used to love when I was growing up. It's. It's the prose that you'd see in something like the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew or Tom Swift. Uh, so it, it always brings me back to writing, like, like you know, 
uh, you know, Tom plotted along, uh, yeah. you know, writing the little bits of dialogue and then adding the, you know, he said, or he asked, there's something about that that brings me back to those books. And so for some reason I can always sort of get a groove on that when I'm, when I'm working on that. Um, the hardest part for me is the scripts. Uh, okay. I, I, I think a part of this is because I'm still learning how to write scripts correctly. I did the copy paste thing for a long time where yeah. I do that. And I figured out just how stilted and wooden that made things. And okay. it's only over the last maybe four years or so after I've taken like sketch comedy classes and comedy writing classes that I figured out other approaches to doing that. And so I've, oh, interesting. I've spent the last couple of years sort of retraining my brain to spend more time in the scripts, uh, try to write everything out rather than doing the copy and paste and, and sort of making everything fresh again. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. Do you, yeah. so do you then just have the outline maybe beside or on a separate screen and you're rewriting everything? Yes. Or what it, what's that sketch comedy yeah, the sketch comedy part of it is just, um, I'd say taking sketch comedy classes. So I took a bunch of sketch comedy classes at UCB. And uh, another really formative thing was working with Lauren Faust on DC Superhero Girls. Yeah. So in that one, she runs things very much like a writer's room where um, you're in for a full day or two days to break one 11 minute story. Like you'll, wow. I, I remember I spent like two full days breaking one 11. Um, okay. And she likes to use the Blake Snyder method of, of going, mm -hmm. okay, here's your starting point. Here's your fun and games. Mm -hmm. um, I've never heard the term fun and games before, but since then it has become so important and influential oh, in yeah. my writing. Um, and I, yeah, I, I hadn't heard it until like three years ago. So it was, it was a very big break. <laughs> um, but fun and games were when you're in sort of the, the second act and you're just playing with all, with everything that you've set up for the story. Yeah, those um, trailer moments, as yeah. Blake Snyder there, says. I, I'd say the, uh, everything I've learned in sketch and everything I've learned from those fun and games breaks are kind of how I approach scripts now, where cool. I'll have that set amount of time working on act two, and I'm just going, what else can I throw in here that's just gonna uh. break this apart and make it even more fun? And I really challenge myself to try to come up with the next really funny thing or a tag on something that um, will be the next funny line after the funny line. Yeah. Um, it's, just a, it's just a different way of looking at it. Beforehand, I would just do the copy paste and I'd, I'd do a quick version of the dialogue that would help me write a script fast, but mm -hmm. then I'd have to end up rewriting everything to make it feel more natural. This is just a, an approach where I just sit with everything a little bit longer so I can add those tags and add those those fun beats. I like that a lot. I feel like it's probably more fun end games for you to write yeah. as well. It seems like you probably enjoy it a lot more than that. I yeah. think sometimes we maybe, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but we can get a little uh, wooden at the script stage where it becomes just sort of like you were saying, where it's like, I just need my page count or I just, need to get this off to my story editor so it's yeah it becomes I, honestly that's that's actually been the big one for me is yeah do not send this to my story editor until the deadline they have given me because okay I, I I'm the kind of writer that again when I was doing copy paste you can write scripts really quick yeah. and you you can get them done in the first couple of days and it took a long time to be like 
uh, I, for a long time, I had a note card on my wall that said, do not send this. It is not ready. <laughs> and I would just have it up there because the greatest feeling a writer can have is to have written and to have uh, turned in. It's the yes. greatest dopamine rush that you can get. But yes. if you do it too early and you haven't sat with something for a long time, it can lead to problems for your story editor. So right. just sitting with something and yeah, and having that card to, to remind myself not to turn this in and to keep tr looking and breaking and trying to explore a script until that deadline hits was that, again, that's, yeah. those are breakthroughs I had later in the process. You know, had I, had I learned them early on, I think I would have saved myself some, some turmoil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it takes dozens of these for us to realize things we could have started with. Um, <laughs> how do you deal with sort of the, um, like expanding, like you're saying, and playing and breaking new things at script versus sticking to the outline. Do you ever find that you're, if you have an incredible new idea, is your process to maybe pitch it to the story editor and be like, hey, I'm going to veer from the outline. Is yeah, this okay? I, or I usually, I usually um, uh, run it by someone first. If I have something that's going to break the outline or, or change it up a little bit. Um, it was fun when I was a story editor, uh, like yeah. I was a head writer on Unikitty. And I could just, if I knew... If I knew that my showrunners, Ed and Lynn, were going to laugh at something, I would just mm -hmm. put it in. I, yeah. I, I had a, a really great working relationship with them where they trusted me to be like, if there's a beat that you think is gonna, gonna work, then by all means, go for it. And awesome. that was a really fun show because often we were, you know, we were, we were scrambling to, to get our outlines and our scripts in fast enough that we'd usually have it where a writer would turn something in I very rarely send in notes. I, the, the outlines and scripts were so short that I could just do a, a, a pass on it. Okay. And then I could send that to Ed and Lynn and then they would do a pass. And with, with board-driven show, or this wasn't a board-driven show, it was script-driven, but our yeah. board artists were so heavily involved that often they would add their own passes. And every single time, new jokes would be added that the yes. other side hadn't thought of. And that's, that's yeah. a really fun, fun thing to see. Yeah, I love when you see it after they've touched it and you're like, oh, that's, why yeah. didn't I think of that joke? Yeah, or when, or when, yeah, some little joke brings everything together in this perfect full circle way. Those are always the best. Yes. What about when you're, like you said, when you're the head writer, do you expect your writers to do that similar thing where when they get to script, punch everything up, elevate it, or are you good with them sticking pretty much exactly to the outline. Like, what are your expectations? Yeah, I think sticking to the outline is good, but it makes it so easy when they've really done a great job on punch up with jokes, especially with Unikitty, which was such a joke heavy show. Often we we change large sections of the outline or script from what a writer had given us, but we okay. would leave in, if it was a, a really great comedy writer, we would leave in the jokes or we'd, we'd work the outline in a way where we could keep the best jokes in. Um, yeah. uh, one of our writers, Jordan Morris, um, uh, he became our, uh, a writer that, uh, would work on this character called score creeper for us. who was like a villain for Unikitty. And often the score creeper episodes would change a bit because, um, he had like canon in the show. He was, he was a recurring character. So we had to keep his storyline. Mm -hmm. 
So the stories would change that Jordan would give us, but his jokes were always so funny. He's such a good punch-up writer that we, we'd have to leave them in. Like we yeah. leave the jokes in, even if the story changed, just so we could get the, those, those wonderful punchlines. That's awesome. That's the dream as a writer, to write jokes so good that <laughs> even if the story changes, they have to keep them. Yeah. And I love that too when I'm a writer, like I'm a freelancer, and I have the joke that I love so much. Yes. And it makes it through animatic and yes. it makes it through the, the takes and you finally see it on the air and you just can't believe that that one made it through the gauntlet. Oh, it's yes. the greatest feeling. Greatest feeling. And sometimes it'll be the most surprising one. Like sometimes yeah. I'll put one in there that I'm like, there's no way this survives, <laughs> but, but I love it. <laughs> if it does, or if it's one, uh, I had one recently that a freelance writer wrote the joke. I loved it. So I doubled down on it and added it you know, a, another version of it later. And then our showrunner loved it so much. She added a third take on it. So just to watch it, not just survive, but grow. Yes. Um, is also That's so great. Fun. Yeah. When they, when they add tags on it and yeah, they expand it or they make it like a recurring thing in the series. Like, you know, yeah. one episode will have it and then they do a recall much later on a different episode. Those are great. Yes. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So that is your journey. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to talk to you about today and do a deep dive on is the Animation Guild. Yes. Because what a mystery. Uh, I've been in it for however many years and I attend meetings and I still don't really know what it is. Yeah. But you are very involved and are the co-chair of the Writers' Yeah, Committee. I'm a co-chair of the Writers' Craft Committee for the Animation Guild, which is still relatively new. We've only had committees for about two or three years now. Oh, wow. And last year and this year were the first years that we've really um, tried to grow and, and expand the group and, and formalize it in the, in the way that we've done with our meetings. That makes me feel a little better because I thought I just missed it for <laughs> the first few years I was around. Um, but that makes sense that it's, it's a newer thing. So can you walk us through to start the general idea of the guild? at large, um, and then we'll sort of narrow in on writers, but yeah. what is the Animation Guild and, and where did it come from? Right, so the Animation Guild's a union. Um, in our case, we're a union uh, that's part of a much bigger union called IATSE, which is the International Allegiance of Theatrical Stage Employees. Um, we're a community of trade workers. In our case, we have the specific craft of animation and writing and technicians. That's all encompassed in the Animation Guild. Mm -hmm. And the union is, collectively striving for improvements in jobs and lives. And we're working for better wages, better working conditions, job opportunities, uh, finding community, just connecting with other people. That's also a big part of what we do. Yeah. Um, uh, writers in particular, uh, are, are we work very well with unions. Um, because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, historically, we're a trade that gets taken advantage of uh, by yeah. our employers namely our studios from time to time. Um, there's a great book on the subject called The Writers, A History of American Screenwriters in the Guilds that I recommend oh, listeners cool. check out. And it, it kind of covers everything that goes wrong. You have unpaid drafts, unpaid development work, uh, loss of original characters, and the mm. list goes on and on. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, the Animation Guild is, is a little different than the Writers Guild of America. So we are not the Writers Guild of America. We are different, yes. we are writers in a different guild. 
um, were relatively new compared to the WGA. So WGA was founded in the 30s and the Animation Guild was founded in the, in the 50s. And it, it only in the last couple of decades have we really had uh, the Guild carve out specific negotiations for animation writers. This is something mm -hmm. relatively new compared to um, what the other guilds were doing in the previous century. Do you know the history of of that and why, you know, on the early cartoons like Looney Tunes and stuff, there's yeah. not even really credited writers. Is that why we kind of came around later because yeah. there wasn't that distinction? So it's interesting, writers in the Animation Guild sort of came about because of a fluke in the system. Oh, good. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Disney television animation was one of the first places that started to um, bring writers into the Animation Guild. And it was because television was ramping up and studios were starting to have these television divisions and writers were asking for unionization. People that were coming in and writing the scripts specifically were asking to be part of a union. And I can kind of get into this in a second. It goes into why uh, there are certain benefits that the WGA writers have that animation writers do not. But um, there, there was sort of a turning point, I'd say this was in the 70s and 80s probably, where they had to decide where to put these writers. And mm. it made more sense at the time for the studios to just put them in the animation guild and list them as story people rather than listing them as credited writers. And that's why for a lot of writers, we don't see the term writer on our paychecks. We see right. animation story person, we see apprentice story person, journeyman story person. Uh, we're, they don't even list us as writers on our, yeah. our timesheets. Right, we're just story people. It's so yeah. elusive. Okay, so let's, I jumped ahead on you. Then let's back up and talk about joining the guild like when does one sure. if i just move out here and i want to write for tv am i supposed to join the guild before i start working how does that process work so um you can't join the guild yet um you have to work for a guild signatory studio first so mm -hmm. um if you you can get it for through a couple of ways but the key number is 600 hours so you have to have 600 hours in a full year you have to accrue 600 hours in order to have enough to qualify for joining the guild and get guild membership. Um, and it's something that you just have to save your timesheets. So if you're mm -hmm. working at Warner Brothers and you freelance on one 11 minute show, you accrue a certain number of hours, maybe the, the, I think it's like 350, 400 for that. Yeah. And then you work on another show and you get more hours. Um, you can get it for developing a series if you're working mm -hmm. at a guild studio. Um, if you're a part of a writer summit or if you do, sometimes they do comedy punch-up rooms, you can get mm -hmm. some hours that way. Basically anything that gives you a timesheet and a paycheck and it states the number of hours, just hold on to all of those and that's how you, you show your, um, that you can join the guild. Uh, but you don't have to be a member to take advantage of all the resources that are on the guild's website. So if you go to animationguild.org, um, there's a lot of resources there. There's classes that can be taken. There are, uh, we, we've been doing the Fireside Chat series, which is a virtual series um, where uh, anyone, any, anyone can, can access those videos now uh, mm -hmm. about some basics of writing for our field. So there's a lot of resources available, but yeah, 600 hours is that, is that key number. 600 hours. And in my experience, I, I had freelance, then it was a long time before I did any other guild work. But at that point, I joined a show on staff and the guild found me. 
very quickly they approached me and they wanted yeah. my dues. Um, so is that common or is it more common that you'll have to sort of compile your time cards, like you said, and approach the guild and say, I want in? It's more common that they'll find you. And okay. the thing with, with getting that, that packet, um, the, the main thing is, and I'll, I'll give a, uh, I, I probably should give a, a disclaimer here at the top, just, just saying that I'm not a, a business representative of the guild. Uh, that's yes. Steve Kaplan, our business rep. Uh, I am just a volunteer that helps out with a specific committee. And these are my own thoughts and opinions. Um, I'd say you don't have to join the guild right away. Uh, I, you know, the packet is good. They'll keep following up with the packet. I would say it helps tremendously if you join as soon as you can. Yeah. The moment you get in, you have access to so many different things that the guild provides. You can join the health and pension plan mm -hmm. and get on really good health care. That means if you have a doctor, dentist, optometry, uh, therapy visit, you can get it paid by your employers. They're going to be paying into that fund. Uh, you start receiving a pension. So mm -hmm. uh, at the end of your you know, work career, when you want to retire, that pension has, has uh, been accumulating in, in assets and you're going to come away with a nice nest egg for retirement. Uh, and you can also start investing in a 401k plan. And I, I did not even know the 401k plan existed until maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. And as soon as you are in the guild and you're working for one studio, you can just start taking a small percentage of your income and invest that. And it really makes a difference if you start as soon as possible. It, it just, the, the value of getting it in over a longer number of years uh, is just substantially better. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, a bunch of different reasons to take advantage of, of joining the guild as soon as you can. And you also, you're going to have access to more things now as a writer uh, once you're in. We have mm -hmm. um, uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Discord where writers can join in and, and hear about things. Um, we have a lot, we we, we have things in the works for mentorships programs and, and staffing and, and job training. So all of those are uh, things that writers will have to their advantage by joining the guild. Yeah. And that sense of community, which is not something I initially thought the guild would be uh, a place for me to find that. Um, mm -hmm. And just in the last year or so, since things have picked up with the writers craft committee, especially, I feel like, you're getting a big sense of that even at our monthly zoom meetings it's like oh that that face i saw that face on zoom last month it's like I know. i'm starting to know names and it's nice our our mutual friend dan salgarolo said you know whenever the the monthly meeting pops up on his calendar for a second he's just like oh i gotta i gotta go to the meeting tonight uh and then the moment he comes in and he sees all the faces it's like oh this is this is this is a really good feeling i love the feeling yeah. of the familiar faces and you know, especially this year when we haven't been able to see right. each other in person. I, I love getting to, to see people I haven't seen for a while. It, it's kind yeah. of like a mini Comic-Con every month, which is really cool. Yeah, it'll be really nice when they're we're able to meet back in person and to have that monthly thing to look forward to. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I feel like we all get pretty tunnel vision on whatever show we're on. And it's like, these are the only writers I've spoken to in <laughs> six months. It's like, I need to break out. Um, cool. And... Can you talk about, we started touching on the differences a little about WGA and Animation Guild, but 
there's always this tension and turmoil about why aren't we in the WGA and the minimums and the residuals. Can you talk about the history of that maybe or or why there continues to be a separation? Yeah. So um again, this one this one's another big disclaimer for me on on my yeah. own opinions and not anything that's that's specific guild policy. <laughs> sure. One of those where I, I had to research a little and and I've I've talked to a lot of people about this. And History-wise, this all kind of boils down to money. Um, okay. the, 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 the big thing to keep in mind is that the studio system for network television that uh, the, writers, uh, uh, the Writers Guild of America used to set up their residuals program was based on something from the previous century. It was a model uh, based on ratings from the previous century. So hmm. um, if you have a hit show on a network program, uh, studios can then get ads from, from advertisers. So they can get car commercials and they can say, our show is watched by 20 million viewers a night. So they can, they can charge a really high rate to have those commercials air. And um, that, that would cover a lot of live action television, you know, mm -hmm. welcome back Cotter or, you know, yeah. the big shows or chips or, or whatever the big shows were those, for those nights. Um, and writers for the writer, for the WGA saw that and went, okay, the studios are making X amount of money, a lot of money, you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, from these advertisers to, to uh, get these ads during their, during their programming. We want to cut a price. And that also meant not only getting really high minimums for the writers that were staffed on those shows, it also meant that they were getting residuals, which are every time a show is on the air or is rebroadcast, a writer and really whoever worked on it um, gets yeah. a cut of that. <clears throat> you know, it works for the Screen Actors Guild the same way. <clears throat> the problem with that is that the ratings sort of set this cast system where if you were a live action show that was on prime time, you get really high viewership and therefore mm -hmm. your ads and just the, the budget and revenue you'd have would be really high. But if you're working on say a Saturday morning cartoon show or a daytime cartoon show, the viewership is very low and you're also targeting a smaller audience. So you're, you're targeting like, you know, six to 11 or, or you know, an age group that's not going to care about car commercials. So <laughs> yeah. Advertisers themselves, if you're if you're buying from Kellogg's, Kellogg's isn't going to have the money to put up the the their ads the same way that Mercedes Benz is. Right. So the issue is that is that the studios now have big studios that have a lot of money, smaller studios making daytime animation that have a much smaller revenue money pool to to um, work from. Mm -hmm. um, Studios, now it's been kind of funny because animation studios have become really good at making great content on a lower budget. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing an article that was like, you could do four or five quality animated shows for the cost of one daytime drama or, or, or one prime drama. So the cost is very different. Yeah. All of that, all of that is to say that um, the WGA model was set up, uh, at a time when ratings really meant something and the Nielsen system and ad revenue really meant something. Yeah. And it's, it's very different now. The separation that we're talking about, the um, WGA versus uh, 839, again, 
for a lot of different factors and kind of the fluky way that writers came about in 839, it, it, it's all kind of mixed together. It, it, the, the fact that they were just talking about a couple, you know, a couple dozen writers at the time, not right. thinking that, you know, decades later, there'd be thousands of us. Yeah. Um, the fact that these studios are just working from a smaller financial pool than that of, of studios that are working for these, these larger um, uh, primetime shows. Uh, that sort of created this very strange system where we find ourselves in animation guild that uh, just does things differently, that uh, uh, is working for and striving for different things uh, than the WGA is striving for. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, a, a big overwhelming uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, attempt to, to, to cover something that's, that's very expansive and also very tense, like we talked about. So yes. um, you mentioned the, um, the, the push to try to get into the WGA. So yeah. a couple of times in the history of the Guild, writers have tried to get into the WGA. Uh, this has happened yeah. on, during strike years. Uh, I remember this was a big deal in like 2007 and mm -hmm. it might've been done prior to that. I'll, I'd have to check the history of it. But in each of those cases, uh, writers have tried to bring animation writers, daytime animation writers that have been part of the Animation Guild into the Writers Guild. Each mm -hmm. time that's happened, we've been basically positioned as a bargaining chip during these strike sessions. So the WGA has, you know, they have lots of things to consider for their, their members. And in each instance, trying to get Animation Guild writers in for as WGA didn't happen. We were a bargaining chip that got struck uh, mm -hmm. in order to get other things that the, the WGA was, was vying for. Um, so in each instance, we've, we've tried to get it and it's been struck down. And we, I, I can't remember if in the last strike, if that happened or if the, the almost strike that we had, if that was something, yeah. they, they didn't strike. So it was never a, right. a bargaining issue. Um, but that's, that's something that comes up each time that there's a major strike between the WGA and, and other studios. Right. Do you know much about, not to put you on the spot, but because I know you haven't worked in the adult animation space or any of that primetime animation space, but a lot of those shows are covered by WGA. Mm -hmm. So is it just, it's my understanding and that the WGA can always cover an animated show and it's just about the people making the show and the studio making an agreement yep. to be covered by it's, the WGA. It's much more about the studio, I think. Okay. It's about the studio and if they feel like the cost of the show justifies you know, putting it on where it's going to be an ad, ad driven show or something right. that's going to, you know, this is actually a really interesting topic because, you know, the ad revenue system at the moment is kind of, you know, it's, it's divided. There's so many yeah. streaming shows. And one of the most amazing things right now, uh, especially on Netflix, is that in the top 10 of Netflix, you often see really top quality animated shows in yeah. their top 10. Like, Avatar The Last Airbender will be the number one watch show yes. on streaming. Legend of Korra will be the number one watch show. And it really, it's breaking the model of what, what networks see as the thing that they want to pool their resources in. Suddenly it's, if we can get an animated show that can break that top yeah. 10 in streaming, why not put more resources into it? And anytime you can put more resources into something, 
the people that are working on that show can ask for more. They're, they have, you know, we have uh, uh, self-worth and value to yes. ask for that. A lot of this just comes down to leverage, you know. Are, yes. we, are we creating things, you know, do we have enough worth in, in our own work and what we're providing them to ask for the things that, that we want? Um, in the instances of like a Seth MacFarlane show, like yeah. Family Guy, you know, Seth is a, a you know, a, a hit maker that can ask for these things. And I think in each instance where you're, you're in negotiations and you're trying to figure out you know, the best deal for your show, it's at that stage where you can ask to be WGA or 839 mm -hmm. or um, you can ask for residuals or not residuals or you know, that, that kind of thing. So I, I think, yeah, I think it's studio, it's really studio based and where right. the shows go, like prime time for, for ad sponsored shows that ends up getting that, that WGA treatment. But I do think the model is, is starting to change. And especially yeah. if Netflix or these other subscription services start going into an ad based tier system where maybe they have ads shown for one tier system and you get those, those commercials. Um, if that ever happens, I think that's something that we should start asking for more. Um, the, the, the same treatment that a lot of um, WGA animated shows get. Um, yeah. Because we, we, we are now seeing evidence that we deserve it. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned negotiating and you met on a show by show basis, but this year is a negotiation year for the mm -hmm. Guild. And can you just talk generally speaking what that even means like why how often do we negotiate who are we negotiating with yeah um we are negotiating with the studio so every i think it's two or three years um okay. all of uh all of the animation studios gather a lot of them are pooled together but there's a couple other uh companies that negotiate separately like i think nickelodeon is one of them and they work with they work you know it's probably a week or two of negotiations and proposals where okay. um, they're just trying to um ratify the contracts. So we have, you know, real uh, set practices and set contracts that um, the, the animation guild and the studios have set together and it covers all sorts of different things, how much the minimums are, uh, what the uh, overtime pay is, all mm. of that. Um, every, every two or three years we get to go back and say, these are the things we want to change in the contract. Um, so this is one of those years. So we've been working towards that. Uh, we've got a really great negotiating committee uh, for the guild in general. There's there's mm -hmm. so many volunteers that are helping this year, um, which is really great. And we also have one of our strongest um, negotiating teams uh, for the writers committee that we've had for a while. Uh, in the past, it's in the past, it's been really interesting. They they haven't really separated out this the idea of like. Uh, writers on the negotiating committee until just yeah. the past couple of decades. I think uh, I know all of the people who were uh, on these negotiating committees. That's how yeah. that's how brief in existence it's been. Uh, and this year we have four people on our, our committee, and we're 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 trying to reach out and listen to our membership as much as possible to get everything that we are are striving for on the negotiating table um, and make mm -hmm. sure you know every every person's voice is heard. Um, and try to get as much leverage for those negotiations as possible. Yeah, and is it each craft is all negotiating at the same time? So you're in the room with the writers and the animators all vying for more money from the studio? Like, is there any cross-craft chats or is it all separate? How does that work? Yeah, I think um, 
this is funny. I've never been on the negotiating committee. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you every question. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, the, if, if, if you get a chance to have Marigret Scott on, she could answer this probably more in detail. I think the way it works is that um, the committee as a whole meets a couple of times. They okay. see if there is any crossover of going, oh, okay, you're asking for the same thing. Maybe we can come to a, a single proposal on that and kind of whittle it down. That way it's not, you know, the people that are in these negotiating committees also have lives. And so exactly. I'm sure they don't want a full month of being in those negotiation rooms. So they try to whittle it down. But yeah, the idea is that um, each negotiating committee comes with different proposals that, that we can then talk to the, our business representative about and kind of whittle what works the best and what we can ask for that we can hope to achieve in those, in those um, uh, moments where we're trying to change the contracts. Okay, cool. That makes sense. It feels like also to get more leverage, like you were saying, if it's every craft wants more paid holidays, whatever it is, if it's everyone asking for it, then it feels like it would have more right. chance than just the one writer being like, can we, uh, can we have more cereal at the commissary? Um, cool. And, and what about other reasons you might come to the guild? Like I, I haven't been in a situation yet where I need to approach the guild, but I know you can approach them if maybe you're not getting paid, like you're supposed to be getting paid or do they act sort of like an HR department? Mm -hmm. What is that relationship? Yeah. So um, there's grievances with grievances, especially if it's something that you're just not sure about. Um, if there's ever a grievance anyone has, they can always go and contact the guild offices directly. Um, mm -hmm. The best line for grievances is Steve Kaplan. If you check the guild's website, um, his email address is on there. If you're looking for general info and you just want to, you know, float an idea in, um, the office staff will connect you to someone who can help. Um, there's the office staff directly. Often in guild signatory shops, there's also a, a shop steward. So someone mm -hmm. that is uh, paid and trained through the animation guild to be the person that people can go to for grievances. Um, sometimes it's easier if someone at the studio that's a part of the union can collect a lot of similar grievances and then take them to the guild so that yeah. we can mention that this isn't one isolated incident. This is a, a pattern that we're seeing and they can, they can, the, the union can then talk to HR representatives at a studio or they can, okay. um, they can be, they can be the person that, that brings this up rather than an individual employee. Cause again, we're, we're stronger together. We can go into this collectively and say, this is an issue a lot of people are having rather than just the one person who, again, may be worried about their, their, their job, not wanting to get fired. And right. Um, I'd say that the most important thing is if, if a writer that is in at a union shop has issues or has grievances and, and just isn't sure of what to do, just always ask the, the problems breed when there's silence. And the more open and outspoken we can be and, and, and talk about this, um, the more we can find ways to serve those, those people who may be having issues and struggling. Yeah. What about us as writers, our relationship with the guild, with the studio, and then with our reps? Like if I have an issue, usually my first call is to my agent to be like, hey, this happened. How do we want to deal with it? Have you found agents have good relationships with the guild? And they should be informed Not of all good really. things. Yeah. I, I, I don't find that uh, agents and management talk as much to the guild as they okay. maybe should. I actually think yeah. they should change that. Um, 
because again, we're we're all going for the same thing. We want the best work. Right. And in many instances, we want the best conditions for the, um, the those that are employed because yeah. really good uh, living wages and living conditions lead to better work. You know, we're, we're happy and healthy and we're going to be able to produce the best quality of stuff for the studio. So I think it's at every level. Um, it, it, I guess it just depends on what the dispute is. If it's something where you're negotiating an individual contract for something, it's, you know, an agent is obviously very helpful in that right. instance. If it's something where it's um, a grievance later on, um, we're actually doing more series on development and we're hoping yeah. to do things on things like credit arbitration, um, you know, oh, how great. to distinguish your credit for things like award season. So those are, those are ongoing and coming up with the guild. Um, and, it, and it's definitely something that we're, we're figuring out now that there's more of a demand from our writer membership to, to you know, dive into that and tackle those areas. I know a big one that we've talked about a lot last year was development. Yeah. Um, when you're developing something, it's really nice to get paid for that development, uh -huh. especially if you're spending a lot of time <laughs> on it. So um, someone on our development committee, Colleen McAllister, put together this really great um, set of materials for those that are pitching development to be like, okay, if I'm doing original development, that's one thing. But if I'm going in and the studio has IP and I'm working for hire to, you know, create things for that, that studio, I should be getting paid because the studio still has rights yeah. to that IP and can do what they want with it. So that's something we collectively as a union have been, have been reaching out to studios to ask for uh, just because it was something that we were relatively silent about and weren't asking for prior to that. And, and it's yeah. been making strides. I know a lot of right. writers have mentioned that they've been getting paid for more uh, IP work than they had in the past. And um, I know just in my experience, I think bake-offs, which is the term yeah. for head writer pitching against head writer and no one except the one who gets it getting any money out of it, uh, bake-offs becoming a, a less common occurrence and, and mm -hmm. Studios actually reaching out to just the person they want and paying them a little bit of development money uh, rather than doing those big bake-off sessions. I feel like that was a great example of the guild getting behind something and it took a memo, like a, just an emailable thing and suddenly everyone's getting paid for their IP work. It's, it's pretty incredible. It's like, oh, <laughs> that's all it took. It's another example of if we just done this years ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also wanted to ask about non-union work and how that affects the guild maybe, or if it has any effect. I think a lot of us animation writers, especially if we're gonna be freelancing, we end up taking non-guild work. Um, is that okay? Is it damaging? Uh, so I, my answer for this one, again, it, uh, I'll add all the regular disclaimers that I've added several times now. Um, I'd say the answer is yes and no. Um, it's kind of like asking someone for an animated script template. It's different for every show. Yeah. So the guild, the animation guild would prefer you work for guild studios if you are a union member. But in the instances where that's not possible, they're not going to come after you for working non-union. They, they actually mentioned that in job posts that they have for non-union work saying, right. we understand that, you know, there are a lot of non-union shops and that it's really important that animators find work and that they, they stay employed and they stay healthy. That's, you know, that's still condition number one. 
um, in many instances, it's actually benefited the union for um, shows to that start non-union to then push to make that company union later on. So animators could start on a show that's non-union and then later they can, um, they can strike or they can uh, hold out until they, they reach that union membership. Um, I think Tornante and Bojack Horseman was a great example yeah. of that. For the final seasons, they approached the, the, uh, the, the company Tornante and they, they, they asked if they could be union for that final season. And, and they, they were granted that. They, they held out until they got that. So in those instances, it's great. I'd say for animation writing specifically, we're often, we often start in a, in a position of weakness in our business, yeah. right? So we start as coordinators and we move up or we, we work for a long time and we manage to get that first freelance job. And at those points, there's very little leverage for us. So we just kind of right. have to either go with the flow or we don't get those jobs. And I would say don't sweat those when you're first starting out. You know, take the jobs yeah. you can get if you feel like you're right for it. Um, here's what I would say, though. At some point, if you work for a while and you get really good and you're highly valued by your studio um, and you're a creative that will make them money, that's the time when you can start leveraging and you can put belief in your own worth. And that can mean the difference in getting a show unionized or non-unionized. Mm -hmm. um, if, you're, if you're developing a show and it'll probably come down to the studio asking, um, you know, can we do this non-union? Is it possible? And that's the point where each person that's lucky enough to be at that level kind of has <laughs> to hold out for, for what they believe in. In that instance, it's, it's, uh, a belief should be getting writers union work because it's going to make for a better room. It's going to make for a much happier environment. If you know that those writers are taken care of with health and pension and all the other things that we mentioned. Um, there's a book I'd recommend. It's called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And mm -hmm. he talks a lot about, you know, knowing your own value when you go into negotiations at, at every stage, whether it's talking to your agent about something or um, talking to studio representatives, just know going in what you think you ought to be fighting for in those instances. I love that. Will you say the title one more time? Yeah, it's called Never Split the Difference by Never Chris Voss. Okay, and I'm assuming it's a general. Yeah, zone. it's more general but, like negotiation and, you know, but cool. it's really helpful for writers, especially yeah. writers that, are coming into those first big breaks that can yes. determine how things are going to go for the next two or three years on a project. It's, you know, it's going in with as much leverage as you can in the course of like two or three days that will decide how your life is going to go for the next, right. you, know, see, you know, you know, season of a project or series. Yeah. And I don't think that's something us as writers are prepared for. That's not why we got into this to be strong arm. <laughs> uh negotiators is that something too we can lean on the guild for i mean obviously minimums are set so there's no going below that but um things like that ip example it, if you're approached for work and they aren't planning to pay you is it as simple as sending them that email we got from the guild and say no this is the line or yes, I, I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think it is really important to, you know, use the union to every advantage we can. And uh, often we say, let them be the bad guy, kind of in the same yeah. way we let our agents be the bad guy. Yeah. It's okay to use them for that. You know, our, 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 
you know, Steve Kaplan, our business rep, he's paid to, you know, figure out ways to get the best possible outcome for our members. Um, and he's not afraid to be the bad guy on that. Yeah, I think he loves it. We as a collective craft committee, uh, are, are beco it's becoming a point where we're not afraid to be the bad guy because collectively we're all hearing that we want these changes and we're all collectively asking yeah. for them together. So as long as we hold the line and keep asking for it together, one member asking for something never has to be embarrassed or ashamed. Right. That they're, that they're trying to, to get something that, uh, that, that we should have, that we, that we should want and we should go for. Yeah. And that's going to benefit everyone. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel is a misconception about the guild or you wish people knew coming into it that maybe they they should know and, and no one tells them? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. I think the big one that everyone worries about is that initial uh, membership fee. It's a lot yeah. at first. It's a steep membership fee at first, but it covers a lot. It covers office fees. It covers the initial joining fees for all of the pension and health plan programs. So there's a lot that goes into that initial fee. And at, at first when, you know, if you're just starting out and your freelance paycheck is the most money you've seen in a year, it's very hard to say, I'm going to give a portion of this to, to cover, you know, something other than rent and expenses. Um, but I would just say it's, it is really important. Once you're in the, the minimums that you're going to be paying drop significantly, you're not going to see that much money on it again. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it works out great because it's, it's so much less money you're going to see on your um, health coverage, you know, right. you're, you're getting minimums, but you're also, you know, you're paying into the, the health coverage in the same way that the studio is now going to start paying into your health coverage. I'd say another big one is you don't have to be a really high level executive producer or head writer to have a leadership position mm -hmm. in, in the committee. Um, I'm coming in from the position of a staff writer right now. A lot of our people that are in subcommittees are staff writers, apprentice staff writers, um, freelancers. Uh, I think one of the things that's been a little tricky is we always have this conception that the person who is the best at being an executive producer and a leader should lead us. Right. And the problem with that is those people get burnt out. If you're trying to run a show and trying to run the committee and handle all of yeah. that, it can be really taxing and, and you can get burnt out. Um, it's often the people who have that little extra time that can be the most useful. Um, I, I try to do like an eight and uh, a seven and one rule where I'll work on freelancer staff work for like seven hours during a workday, but then I'll carve out like 30 minutes or an hour at the end of the day to just focus on guild stuff. And when you're, when you're just starting out and you have that little extra time, it can really yeah. benefit a lot of the other members. So I would just encourage those that are listening to this and maybe they just got into the union or um, they're trying to figure out what to do to look into more of those leadership positions because um, we're always in need of volunteers. And it's often those that are just coming in that have a great deal of energy and ideas for yeah. and things and, and broaden out. Like what we've been talking about with the idea of having mentorship programs yeah. and doing more of these interviews and um, even the staffing uh, system that we have in place now. Like, yeah, please talk about that. Uh, that came about from a member that got in and was a staff writer and was new and, and just had the idea to um, put something like that together. So uh, 
it's so nice when we have that that fresh influx of energy from from yes. new members, no matter where they're they're coming from. Yeah, and that staffing grid, um, I did want to have you describe it in case anyone doesn't know about it. That's already in the guild. It is a database of writers looking for work, and and studios can go through it. Story editors can go through it. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so the idea of it is to uh, help writers find work, actually to help anyone that's in the animation guild, that's a member of the animation mm. guild, find writing work. Um, they've actually set up an Airtable, which is the, the grid system we're using mm -hmm. for both uh, writers and also any craft person that's in the guild. They can find um, uh, an even broader grid that exists for that. Uh, but we created one for writers and I know it's been really helpful because we've been sending it out to a lot of studios and writers that maybe they're just wrapping up a show or they're a little low on their union hours right now, they can post that they're looking for work on the grid. And um, they, there's all sorts of filters that showrunners or studio execs can use. So they can filter by experience level or uh, preferred kind of animation if they wanna write preschool or if they do action uh, or if they focus on comedy. Um, there's demographic information, so you can find people uh, through that uh, if you're trying to boost diversity and, and inclusion initiatives. Mm -hmm. um, there's all sorts of different uses that the that the grid has. So the idea, yeah, is hopefully showrunners are going to see this and they're staff maybe they're staffing up a show. Uh, they can find new writers that they they haven't looked at before, and they can they can actually read samples right there because the. Yeah. the is able to, you're able to upload scripts to it if you want to. So you can upload your resume and then you can upload say a preschool sample if you wanna show a showrunner what your preschool work is like. That's so brilliant and such a useful tool. Um, I, another thing that I, I can't believe it took so long. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, we've got all these amazing things now. Well, I can mention some of the other things that we've got cooking in the next- Yeah, we please do. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, We've been doing this fireside chat series. Uh, yeah. This is this is um, the thing I came onto originally for the writers committee was for mentorship, uh, which is an area that I, again, I've done lots of um, writers groups and and run events for uh, assistance, and it's just something that I'm I'm really passionate about is mentorship. So I wanted to make sure we had a strong mentorship program uh, mm -hmm. going into this. Uh, since we haven't been able to meet in person, we've done these virtual panels. Um, last year, we did the craft series, which is now available on the guild's website. So members and non-members, if you're interested, you can um, just Google Animation Guild virtual panels and it should pop right up. And it's just a series that we've done on each kind of craft that is covered in the Animation Guild by Guild Signatory Studios. So preschool, bridge, uh, 6 to 11 comedy, action, dark comedy now, anime, that kind of stuff, or anime inspired. Um, so we have all these different resources now where if you're just starting out and you want to focus in on one of the crafts, you can check out yeah. the videos. Um, this year, I know we've got our development panel that's going to be coming up soon. And we'll have that online as well. Uh, all things development related. And uh, later in the year, we're going to have ones on financial planning, how to set up loan outs, how to do show running. We're actually doing our showrunners training program, mm -hmm. um, which will be a little similar to what the WGA does where we're going to have a panel full of showrunners talking about what they learned when they were showrunners, things that they had no idea to expect when they were showrunners. Yes. Um, and we're going to try to do a series of one-on-one -on -one interviews with anyone that it would be important for a showrunner to talk to. 
So that includes art directors and line producers and casting directors and learning about the basics of noting animatics or art that comes in. Just things that as from a, from a writing brain, you really just don't think about. And it's mm-hmm. good to talk to someone who knows more and um, knows what to expect and how to get good feedback on that. So those are coming yeah. up. Um, and then the other one I'm really excited about, we're not quite there yet. Um, we're going to be hopefully launching it in next year, 2022. And it's our um, one-on-one or group mentorship program where we can have really high level showrunners and head writers mentor younger writers that have just started in the guild. So maybe Mm -hmm. for your first freelance credits or you're an apprentice staff writer, you can work with uh, someone that's been a head writer producer and you can sort of work with them on on your goals for for being in the guild. Um, Amazing. I hope that we can do one for those that are non-members too, for those that are you know, just trying to get into animation and have no idea where to get resources, where to find scripts, um, who to talk to about um, getting into writer's group and and, and yes. going for the things that they need to, to get started. So those are things that we have in the works later on that um, I think are going to be really great. Again, it's just ideas that other people have had that we're going to try to yeah. actually make good on and, and make a reality. Yeah. It's going to be uh, enormously helpful. There, everything you listed, I'm like, oh, if I'd had that when I first joined and was right. so lost. Um, that's amazing. And how do people sort of close out our guild talk? How do people get involved if they would like to be on the craft committee, any of the subcommittees? or Yeah, um, the best place to start, just check out the Animation Guild, so animationguild.org. The best way to, to get involved is the general information email. So if you go there, there's like a general in, uh, you know, contact page, general info, that'll get you started. So if you're a non-member, it's a great way to learn more about the resources that mm-hmm. the guild offers. If you're just about to become a member, you're not sure if you qualify, um, there's, there's a, a listing there where you can reach out to become a new member. And... Um, I'm pretty sure that it'll connect you to, if you're a, if you're a member, it'll connect you, you can be connected to all the other things that the membership has. So we have a members only email blast that goes out. So you can sign up for that email list. Uh, We have Facebook, Discord, and we have other social media coming. We're trying to actually grow our communications uh, subcommittee right now. So we can be on Instagram and Twitter and and all the other places. Uh, So those are coming. but yeah, if you're just starting out and you're you're interested in you know the basics of animation, I would definitely check out the Fireside Chat series just to get up to speed on all the different crafts and maybe get familiar with some familiar faces uh, mm-hmm. that are in those because it's a lot of people who have you know, again I, I don't think we touched on this about animation, but you get to know everyone, you get to know the community yeah. for a while, and it's one of the reasons I stay is it, it really is one of the most generous, egoless, most wonderful groups of people that will just offer a lot of advice and kind of help you on your journey. Uh, the people are just lovely in animation. So it's a lot of yeah. those cases of people who uh, agreed to be on the panel and, and want to share their, their insight. That segues perfectly into uh, a question I like to ask to sort of close us out is if you have any advice to writers jumping into this and starting their journey and, and how you would sort of guide them and yeah. um, help them. Um, a couple of just uh, reference, uh, book references that I, yeah. I, I've gotten a lot from lately. Um, I read a fantastic, this is specifically for preschool audience listeners out there. If anybody really wants to write preschool, 
I recommend a book series called Bad Guys Don't Have Birthdays. Uh, so the name of the book is Bad Guys Don't Have Birthdays. It was written by Vivian Gussie Paley, um, who is a researcher and a, um, she, she worked with kids about three and four years old. Um, mm -hmm. And she is an expert on play patterns. She would record the playtime experience that her children were having. And it's absolutely fascinating to see how um, a child will watch a show. These, it's great because these were done in the 80s and 90s. So it's all the oh, cartoons good. from the 80s and 90s that they're talking about and yeah. how they would sort of weave it into the narrative of what they were experiencing in their own life. So it's a fantastic resource for anyone that's interested in play in particular and the way mm -hmm. that that um, factors into to writing stories for kids and making it really authentic for the way kids mm -hmm. play. I know that's a big deal for Daniel Tiger and that kind of writing. Yeah. He's actually writing the way the kids talk when they play. Yeah. Um, there is a wonderful resource guide called Gardener's Guide to Writing and Producing Animation. And it's written by- I've heard of this. Yeah, this is great. It's written by Shannon uh, Murr, which is M-U-I-R. And okay. um, I read this maybe about five years ago and I loved it. And it was, a, it, it's, it really is, it's like, it's writing and producing animation for dummies. Um, I love it. The step-by-step -step guide of, of how to get in and, and just the basic pipeline of how to go from cool. script to, to animated show. Um, Advice-wise, I think this is a good way to close because a lot of what we've talked about today, a lot of my answers have been about um, comparison, comparing yourself to animation writers, to WGA writers, or, or people who have just broken into, who aren't quite there yet. There's a fantastic book called Range by David Epstein. And the thesis of his book is summarized like this. Don't feel behind. Don't feel behind. Animation is a really weird field where since the resources are low and it is kind of a who you know business, some people yeah. can feel behind for a long time. There's not like mm -hmm. a step ladder, a perfect step ladder to getting and achieving your dreams. Um, it took me a long time. It took me seven years before I got my first freelance script or, or coordinator job. It took me a long time to really appreciate the many victories that I had and just feel supported by uh, my writer's group. Um, mm -hmm. So I would just encourage everyone to, to not feel behind and not feel like they have to compare themselves to others in their writer's group or anyone that's on similar journeys. It's really hard if the main way you're finding resources is through social media and you have yes. to see all of the incredible things. But I would just encourage that. Um, it's something that I think all of us you know, have to, to work through is comparison to our peers, but peers are also supportive. And mm -hmm. if they have a sense of where you're going, um, it's just so nice to know that you have people in your corner that are helping you strive towards those goals. So that would be my main takeaway today. Don't feel behind. I love that. It's beautiful. And it's a, a important reminder because we get caught up in this and yeah. that comparison trap is yeah. rough. Especially now, you know, especially now yeah. when we, we have tunnel vision just because we can't go anywhere. And yeah, the, the, all we have the, is the screens. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, well, thank you so much. Is there anywhere you would like people to find any of your work or you online, or would you rather they not find you online? <laughs> I'm, I'm not too busy on social media, except I run the Facebook group for our members for A39 and our Discord channel. Uh, the Fireside Chat series uh, for Animation Guild, probably the best way to find me and, and see some of the interviews. Um, 
I, I will plug one thing that I can talk about. Please. All my yeah. stuff is under NDA right now, uh, but Stillwater uh, on Apple TV yeah. is a wonderful show. It is a soft, sweet journey with some young kids that talks a lot about mindfulness and just yeah. being present. And it stars a gigantic panda, which comes yeah. full circle because my stuffed animal was a giant panda bear when I was growing up. So perfect. And it's a Rob Hoagie show. So it all comes full circle. Amazing. I didn't know you worked on that. I'm very excited to, to check that out. It looks one of, so it's sweet. one of my favorite experiences. It's what it's it's the softest, sweetest preschool show I've worked on oh. yet. Uh, and yeah. I can't wait for people to see my episodes when they when they uh, come out later this year. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. Go Tigers. Boo, Timberwolves. <laughs> <laughs>